This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome again to Extra with me, Geraldine Doog, here on RN. Uh, we have a very nice uh, chance to tap into uh, a person with a great deal of experience of Australian policy making, um, Peter Shergold. He's stepping down as Chancellor of Western Sydney University, um, but he's also acutely interested in what comes next for universities. And we'll be looking at um, what might come next for Australian libraries too, with two people who've been on a very big sweep of American libraries where a lot of money's poured in and there's lots of changes underway. And what can we learn or what don't we need to learn? But I want you to take your mind back first to the days and weeks after Hillary Clinton lost the 2016 US election and Donald Trump became president. A new book, Lady Justice, has been written about that time when a small army of female lawyers and advocates sprang into action. The author is Dahlia Lithwick. She's a contributing editor at Newsweek and a senior editor at Slate. And she says this band of women was simply, quotes, unwilling to drift backward to a time when men made policy and women made dinner. That these women were born for this precise moment. They were galvanised and awakened before the Trump inauguration and only deepened their engagement with the legal system and the in the weeks and months and years that followed, which is still playing out. I'm pleased to welcome Dali to Saturday Extra to learn a little more. Thank you for joining me. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Basic question, why did you write this book? <laughs> That's, that is the question. I think the answer is, you know, in some sense, I'm a legal journalist. And so I had covered most of the lawsuits that I mentioned in the book. I was really in it. You know, I, I was living it contemporaneously. And so this was the water I was swimming in for many years. And I think that I was really aware as uh, the first sort of lawsuits around Donald Trump's first legal actions, I was very aware of how engaged women lawyers, women judges, women politicians were in fighting. And I noticed, and I mentioned this in the book, that if you take just for example, Within days of inauguration, Donald Trump enacted a Muslim ban that limited travel to the United States from a, a bunch of majority Muslim countries, and it was not vetted, it wasn't organized, they just simply stopped allowing Muslims in. And one of the things I noticed as I was covering it was that some of the leaders of the legal movement to, to stop that were women. I noticed that women across the country were showing up at airports all out of proportion. Women lawyers were showing up to simply hold up a sign and say, I will be your lawyer. You know, I just do real estate, but I will be your lawyer. And that four of the five judges who enjoined the Muslim ban within 48 hours were women. So I just was really struck by this is a comment on one of the levers that women have to power, which is not just marching in the streets, not just protest, not just, you know, phone banking and postcarding, but actually being able to walk into a courtroom and stop something. Mm. And I think I would just say maybe in the rearview mirror as we're watching women in Iran who don't have access to the levers of power, right? What they have is their bodies on the street. I wanted it to be a marker of how deeply, deeply successful women have been in the law and how deeply successful they can be. And obviously, a lot of these women must have, as and you say, dropped everything and changed course. I mean, that's always a very interesting test, isn't it? Whether people can say, this is so serious, I have to put my existing plans on hold. Yeah. And I also think if you consider how fundamentally small C conservative the law is as a profession. I mean, these are not mavericks. You know, these are people who went down a very well-trodden path of how you succeed in a law as a, you know, organizer, as a, a law firm attorney. And so the fact that they, of all people, were willing to turn and pivot and change their lives. Some of the women I profile are young mothers. Some of them were engaged in doing something completely different uh, it is interesting to me and arresting that they were willing to change everything in a heartbeat because they felt as though they had the power to make change. And maybe the other thing that I noticed that is a through line for so many of the women I interviewed in the book is that even in the face of a legal movement that said, 
we don't think you should do this. The time isn't right. We haven't workshopped this. You know, we're not all um, in agreement about this as a tactic. It was striking to me that time after time, it was women who said, mm, no time, no time to workshop this for two years, just going to file something. And that also was, I think, something that I noticed that felt very new. Yes. You say in your book, Dahlia, there was a sense for you and many other women in the legal profession of how had this happened? Now, have you reflected on that a lot? Just were there warning warning signs that you all in your busy lives did miss? It's such a good question. And I guess I should also note that as this book was going off to the printer, uh, the United States Supreme Court last June, you will recall, um, reversed Roe v. Wade, Mm. uh, taking away the right to abortion from women across the country. And so it's not just a lesson I think we learned in 2016 when somebody who was, you know, a serial philanderer, somebody who'd been accused credibly by multiple women of, you know, assault, that that person could get into office as Donald Trump and then immediately make life, I think, immiserated for women and vulnerable people. But as the book was going off to print, I had to actually rewrite chunks of it in light of what you just said, which is millions of American women, I think, never believed that the right to terminate a pregnancy could be vulnerable. And so almost the lesson that I was tracing from 2016 onward really, I think, became very salient in the spring of 2022 when millions of women had that same reckoning of how can this possibly be happening? How can you have a country where 60, 70, 80 percent of the populace wants reproductive freedom and just had it taken away? And I think there were warning signs. I mean, it was clear if you watched the way the courts were changing, if you watched the way, you know, theology was starting to inflect politics in this country. There were lots and lots of signals, I think, along the way that women who had believed that law was an instrument of equality for them could suddenly realize, oh, my God, this is going to be weaponized against us. But I do think that kind of sitting in that feeling of shock and really millions of women I think after both the Trump election, after Justice Brett Kavanaugh uh, was seated on the court, after confirmation hearings when it seemed as though he had also credibly been accused of sexual assault. And then again, as Roe v. Wade was overturned this spring, I think that that sense that this can't possibly happen here, and yet it just happened here, has been a very, very universal American experience. Yes. Well, I mean, there were... There were warnings, of course, um, lots of warnings from people. Um, and I suppose it's that sense of recognising that identity shifts had occurred because obviously there were millions of American women who knew all that about Trump and the allegations and yet they voted for him. So in a way, you're reflecting on the law and I understand that, but did you almost go deeper to see it as a representation of something else, a sen- part of a sensibility of the US that was really in flux? I think that's right. And I think probably I would add one note to what you just said, which is millions of white women uh, not only voted for Donald Trump and voted for him again in 2020, but a lot of those millions of white women are still, you know, voting, I would say, in some sense against interest, uh, you know, for candidates like Herschel Walker, who's running for the Senate in a runoff in the U.S., who is accused again in Georgia, um, who is accused by multiple women of having paid for their abortions and and insisted they have abortions and yet is running as an anti-abortion candidate. Uh, So I do think you're quite right. There is clearly a a, a race element to this. There is a gender element. And there is, I think, a religion element, as I've said, where it seemed to a lot of people that if you looked, you know, at the election of Barack Obama, that there was a sense that sort of that part of history, that revanchist, backward looking, you know, women belong in the kitchen and, you know, people of color are secondary and we are going to turn on refugees and immigrants. That all seemed like it was over. And I think it's really important. I think you're signaling at this to realize the degree to which the election of Donald Trump was, in fact, responsible to that, that a lot of people who felt that they 
belong to a culture or a race or a sort of hierarchical worldview of where men and women sort themselves suddenly said, well, this can't be so. And a lot of the allure of Donald Trump and still, I would say in the years after the allure of some of the MAGA, the Make America Great Republicans, is the appeal of kind of returning to a simple time of, you know, race and, and gender and LGBTQ um, um, intolerance. And, and so I think that's quite right that uh, both that it, it was coming for a long time. And maybe I think I would also say, and I just opened the book with this and closed the book with this. If you were paying attention at Donald Trump rallies early in 2016 when he threw his hat in the ring, one of the things that crowds were chanting, we thought rhetorically, was lock her up, lock her up uh, about Hillary Clinton. Mm. And I think we thought at the time that was not so different from crowds who were chanting, iron my shirt, iron my shirt, right? Because it was just words directed at sort of misogynistic words, throwaway words. And then I think when the book ends, you start to notice that those crowds have been chanting lock her up about women in leadership in the United States for six years. And that in fact, in the wake of that Roe v. Wade reversal, women are being locked up quite literally in Alabama, in Oklahoma, in Texas for pregnancies and endangering their pregnancies or miscarriages that seem suspicious. And so I think for me, that arc of saying lock her up rhetorically about putting women back in their place and ending with, you know, the opinion in this Dobbs case, reversing Roe, quite literally citing to witch burners from centuries ago as credible legal sources, I think tells you in some sense that women have come very far and not nearly as far as they thought they had come. Well, it is incredibly thought-provoking. I, I heard on um, the Ezra Klein podcast, he writes for the New York Times, uh, a very interesting analysis by um, a good po- a pollster whose name I can't remember, saying that they'd really looked at attitudes. They'd tried to drill down beyond just the figures to attitudes. And there were basically people in the different camps looking out from that camp saying, I don't want to live like them. Both camps doing it to each other, really absolutely from the gut. I don't want to live like they live. <laughs> it was very powerful, um, a sense of, of worlds of difference. So to some extent, I suppose I've got to ask people like yourselves, do you not present an inviting vista for women, uh, other women who you'd think you would, but clearly you don't? I think that you've identified two things that are really singular. One is partisanship in the United States is at a place that is certainly unrecognizable to me as a journalist who's been doing this for 22 years, and I think historically unrecognizable in generations. And there is a deep sense on both the right and the left that, you know, the the real threat is coming from inside the House, that I would rather, you know, align myself with, you know, Orbach in Hungary or Putin in Russia than with, um, you know, Democrats who I see as, as socialists and um, godless liberals. And by the same token, you know, I think folks on the American left who are just absolutely, you know, think that that anyone associated with Donald Trump and Trumpism and sort of conservatism is a hater and is sort of an intolerant uh, uh, bigot. And that's the end of the story. And I think you're quite right. You know, one of the things we've seen, not just in the midterm election cycle, but the last few cycles, is that the sense that the threat to democracy itself is coming from the other side within the country is really new. I think on your other point, it is certainly, I think, the case, and this is just not just an American problem. I think it goes to media bubbles and it goes to, you know, the ways in which we have created uh, sort of media and and cultural and social reality in which the other side is so unrecognizable to us as human beings uh, that we can sort of do this work of never encountering a position or an opinion that's, you know, different from our own. And I think that we're seeing that around the world. And I think it's radicalizing people, this othering of mm-hmm. uh, anyone whose views you don't share. And I think one of the things, and maybe this is something that I really felt acutely, again, as I I was reporting the book, 
was that that project is a little bit harder for women because they have actually inhabited two realities for much of their lives because they've both been trying to mash themselves into a cultural moment in which, you know, men are still dominant, in which they still feel as though, you know, they have to behave a certain way at work. They have to control their tempers. They have to dress a certain way. And because they actually move through the world, you know, as women. And so I think there's a way in which, and and, and some of the characters in the book really de- describe the need for empathy and compassion and that sort of simple skill of walking a few feet in someone else's shoes as kind of the gateway to getting past what you're describing, mm. which is a willingness to utterly write off the other side as useless and unteachable. I'm not super, super confident Americans are getting there. I have to say I have found the polarization of the last few years quite chilling. But I will say, I think that I see, and I really see it as a legal reporter, these deep, deep efforts to try, at least institutionally, to say, I actually don't know what I don't know, and that law and politics can get you there. Gee. Um, Let me tell listeners, uh, Dahlia Lithwick is our guest. She's written a very um, acclaimed book called Lady Justice uh, about the behaviour and and motivations of a lot of female lawyers uh, in America in the last few years. Look, we must look at a couple of female luminaries in the legal system uh, that you draw on. Tell us about Pauli Murray, please, because obviously she really does inspire you from what I can read. I'm so glad you asked. She is my favorite character uh, in some sense in this book, which is funny because she long, uh, you know, died long before um, the advent of the Donald Trump era. I wrote her into the introduction of the book for a couple of reasons. One is, and I don't know how kind of salient this is uh, in Australia, but certainly in the United States, the frenzy over Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was a really, I think, landmark important justice on the U.S. Supreme Court to the point where everyone has a tote bag, everybody has the earrings, everybody has the coffee mug. And she had died recently, and there was a sense of such grievous loss that there would never be a powerful woman in the law again. And so I cast myself back into history to find other characters who I thought of as sort of mini Ruth Baby Ginsburgs. And so Polly Murray really is that. Polly Murray actually almost forgotten by American constitutional scholars. But Polly Murray was the person who wrote what became the brief that became Brown versus Board of Education, the case that desegregated mm-hmm. public schools. She wrote the brief that became the seminal brief that used the 14th Amendment of the Constitution to desegregate by gender uh, in the United States. So she did all this work and got no credit. And throughout history, she wrote a note to Richard Nixon and said, I heard your woman looking for the first woman on the Supreme Court. I think it should be me. And I love her because she sort of pen pals with Eleanor Roosevelt and she's doing all this work and nobody remembers her. And I wanted a little bit to tell Polly Murray's story as emblematic of the ways in which sometimes history forgets women, forgets how they organize, forgets how they work. And yet still they've done the work and that a little bit, my book is a love letter to a whole bunch of women just like Polly Murray. Yeah, I mean, your book also tells your own story with Judge Kozinski, um, which were, who has quite a reputation after two women, Heidi Bond and Emily Murphy, and four unnamed former clerks came forward alleging inappropriate conduct while working for him. Now, this seems to have served as a bit of a catalyst for you to come forward with your own Me Too story. Yeah, I became, I think after Emily and Heidi, I became uh, the third woman who came forward and and reported what I had known about him, mostly to bolster uh, what they had reported, but also, I think, to try to tell a story about how, at least in the United States, um, judges, federal judges who are appointed for life, who can really almost impossible to remove them, can exist in a system when they are sexually harassing clerks, they are showing pornography to clerks, behaving badly for decades, and nobody does anything about it. So it did become, you're quite right, a, a Me Too story, and I should note 
he stepped down after a bunch of women came forward. I should also note, by the way, that just last week he started representing Donald Trump filing a... Oh, um, really? Oh, yeah, no, he, he filed a, a, a legal pleading comparing Donald Trump to Galileo and other uh, misunderstood <laughs> historical figures. So let it not be said that he has disappeared, but I wanted... To think about Me Too, not just as a story of sort of, you know, one federal judge, but the ways in which we all collude to keep secrets and who that imperils and harms. Mm, very, very interesting. Uh, uh, before I let you go, um, I wonder what you think about the moves this week by the Department of Justice wishing to talk to Mike Pence about January the 6th, the um, the riots on January the 6th, and he had declined to take part in the earlier investigation uh, in, in Congress, but he is allegedly weighing up whether this is a different type of approach. Now, again, that sounds to me, but you can tell me if I'm wrong, as if the law is being used in a different way it, and it, it might well be the way through um, to some form of, um, well, I've not settlement, certainly ventilation. What do you what do you make of all of those moves? It's so interesting. And I think the essential pieces of context are one, Mike Pence, former vice president under Donald Trump, wants to run for president. And we know that he's just launched a huge book and a tour attendant with that in which he's going to explain how it's possible that he was intimately involved with the insurrection of January 6th and also is not responsible for it. And in fact, as you said, was making claims that he would not have to say what he knew and he was alleging sort of immunity from having to testify. So the first thing is this is a, a political, I think, move on his part. And then I think we have the problem, which is that Democrats who've been investigating the events of January 6th through the House committee uh, just lost the House. And so the clock Mm -hmm. is ticking down on how long the January 6th investigation can go on. And so that's wrapping up very, very quickly. That will be stymied when Republicans take control Mm -hmm. of the House. And so then we have the third piece of it. So, like, welcome to the arcana of American uh, (laughs) investigations. But the third piece of it is, as you say, the Justice Department which has been investigating uh, Donald Trump for a whole bunch of of, uh, other things, uh, just announced that they were going to seat a special prosecutor who's going to be tasked with finding out what Donald Trump did wrong and what he knew, largely with respect to um, stolen documents. So all of these things are floating around. And I think what you are seeing is Mike Pence trying to pick his way through all of these different sort of some extra constitutional, some through the Justice Department, some through the political branches, through this thicket of how can he preserve his political credibility and still not alienate Trump Republicans who really, really uh, do not support him, who support Donald Trump. And at the same time, how can he finesse this issue of he was literally in the room where it happened and hasn't told us what happened? And I think some of what you're seeing and what we're, we're seeing play out is that seam between law and politics in some sense mm-hmm. that you asked mm-hmm. me about before. And Mike Pence trying really hard to live on the scene of law and politics without implicating himself, without damaging himself politically, and still somehow not kind of cutting off Donald Trump or the people who support Donald Trump. And that's, I think, what he's trying to pick his way through right now. Well, I hope you continue to try and we'll talk to you again to pick your way through all this. Uh, Marvellous to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed, Dahlia Leswick. Thank you for having me. I love being with you. And so of some of you too, Jason from Geelong, this is the sort of political discourse we need. She can see things from both sides. Yes, look, I agree, Jason. Thank you. Dahlia Lithwick's book is Lady Justice, Women, the Law and the Battle to Save America. It's published by Penguin Press. And we will have her back. Up next, could the new university accord produce the biggest reform in a generation? Yes, now to some insights about modern Australian challenges from a man who's uh, seen rather a lot in his time, 
Peter Shergold is stepping down this month from his major position as Chancellor of Western Sydney University. That's the university where a big majority of graduates come from parents who've never had any tertiary education, whatever. It's a, it's a terrific uh, institution. He's had a very wide range of jobs. He's an economist by training. He was born in the UK. He was head of Prime Minister and Cabinet uh, under John Howard. He's also become deeply involved in measuring education standards, which I'll talk to him about. But I'm particularly keen to hear how he views the government's new Universities Accord. That's what it's called. It's a review announced earlier this month with aims to advise Minister Jason Clare on long-term plans for higher education, university and vocational training. And that linkage is very important. It'll be the first broad review of the system since 2008 and the Bradley Review. And some do believe it could produce some of the biggest changes in the sector in a generation. So, Peter Shergold, uh, thank you for joining me. Thank you for the opportunity, Geraldine. Congratulations on, uh, 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 you know, um, retiring in your own <laughs> time and with a, a lot of acclaim. Um, I wonder if you could just do a sort of strengths and weaknesses overview of the sector, given that you've been so closely associated with it, uh, as this new review is underway. Very happy to do that because I'm looking back now, um, not just obviously that public service experience, but 12 wonderful years as a Chancellor out at Western Sydney University. And as you said, you know, this is the first major review of uh, universities and higher education since 2008. It's really important. Uh, Jason Clare, the Minister, has set it uh, very broad terms of reference, looking at everything from, you know, the meeting of Australia's knowledge and skills, how we can look at the uh, funding of uh, universities, uh, uh, particularly important to me, uh, access and opportunity, because I suppose if my university, Western Sydney University, stands out for anything and can really contribute from experience, it's how do you make sure that universities can be a foundation of equal opportunity in Australia? How can you make sure that young people, as they come through, no matter what their background or what their parents have done, can, if they've got the drive, the enthusiasm, the ability, actually get access to university? Yes. Well, that seems to be one of the key missions of this accord, is to improve equality of access how, I mean, have you got, obviously everybody wants that. Have you got any yeah. views about how it can be best done and achieved? Well, uh, uh, my starting position is I'd say that overall universities can <clears throat> only be awarded probably a C plus on what's happened since 2008. If you say that, you know, um, 25% of Australians are uh, low ACS for the purposes of seeing who gets access to university, Back in 2008, it was only 15, 15%. Today, it's 17%. <laughs> I'd have to say that's not much of an improvement. You compare it with Western Sydney University and we've got and have had for years now 30% uh, plus of our students come from those low SES families. So my message is we can do it, but we need to get the policy settings right and we need to get the implementation of those policy settings right. But what's been the difference then? Has, there, has this been a whole yeah. university-wide approach at um, yeah. Western Sydney? Because you've had to do it because that's yeah. been your, 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 your whole group. It is. Look, I think uh, you've put your finger right on it. The first thing you have to do is you have to have a genuine mission that this is what you want to succeed. So for our university, it's always been that we are uh, a university of the people, for the people, an open university. You may not be able to get into university if with us straight away, but you can come in via work experience or mature age. You can come in via vocational. You can come in after school into uh, the college. I think the first thing you've got to say is get the mission right. And then, to be honest with you, Geraldine, it's hard yakka. You've got to work your area. We see ourselves as a, an anchor institution in Western Sydney. Now, when I became Chancellor there back in um, 2011, uh, we were doing that. We were working with public uh, schools, Catholic schools, independent schools. I think I was involved in the program. It's called Fast Forward, working around schools in the area to convince young people they could, if they wanted, get to university. I think we then were working with about uh, 1,300 high school students 
Last year, we had 36,000 interactions with uh, school students in that area. You know, convincing them if they want, the opportunity is there. That's really, really important. The one thing I would add, Geraldine, though, is you've got to get the messaging right. It's not that go to university because otherwise your life is ruined and you won't have the opportunities. It's go to university if that's what you want to do. I don't want in anything we're doing in Western Sydney in a way to privilege academic pathways over vocational pathways. But I want people who want to go to university to have that opportunity and explain to them how they can aspire to that. It sounds to me, though, that there was a bit of uh, propagandising, if I can put it like that, <laughs> going out and suggesting that this might be a good route because, we, as, as you said, a lot of the households would have had no exposure to tertiary education at all. Well, that's right. I mean, uh, you know, a quarter of our students are born overseas. More than that, a quarter of our students, and I'm not counting international students, a quarter of our students go home after university and speak a language other than English at home. So, you know, this is uh, quite extraordinary. And there's another message there if we're serious about uh, access and opportunity. It's actually understanding that this is not all about social disadvantage. You think of someone born overseas, a migrant or migrant parents speaking a language other than English at home. Then they come to Western Sydney University. They get an Australian degree. Uh, What we should be seeing is what an extraordinary strength we have because we've got someone who's bilingual, uh, bicultural, global perspective. In fact, what we're doing is seeing that these people bring strengths to their university degree. Mm. Look, you did emphasise um, TAFE earlier as, yep. as we spoke, and there's always been this strong distinction drawn between vocational education, you know, and private courses and universities. Uh, I wonder in these visitations to local schools and so on, how you do talk about this, because this is something that really is just the tone that is used by universities is, is pretty important, and I think it bothers you. It does. uh, It bothers me. It bothers me when I did an inquiry into transitions from senior secondary school into education and employment. Uh, I talked to a lot of school school groups and it became obvious to me that ATAR, ATAR is a university ranking tool, has for many students come to define their success at the high school certificate. And that is wrong. What it tends to do in young people's minds is privilege an academic pathway over a vocational pathway. That's bad. But what's worse is that demarcation between, if you will, you know, the theoretical and the practical makes less and less sense in terms of the future labour market, which is going to require both of those skills. So to see these as dual sectors, I think, is wrong. I did a report with my uh, friend and colleague, David Gonski, uh, for the New South Wales state government, and we very argued very strongly that we need to rethink not higher education alone, but tertiary education, and in particular, how for those students who wanted, we could actually integrate the theoretical and the practical. And that's why in New South Wales, they're going to do a few demonstration projects now on uh, institutes of advanced technology, first at Meadowbank, second at Kingswood, in which we're actually going to integrate higher and vocational education in the same institution, in the same curriculum. How are you going to... I think that's really... How's that going to work? I mean, it couldn't work for something like medicine, could it? Or could it? Oh, I think it could. So the first two we're doing is um, IT and the second is construction and modern construction techniques. Uh, It works very well um, because what essentially it will say is you can stack up your credentials progressively. So you could come through the first year into this new institution. You would do that variety of theoretical and practical. It would be strongly industry focused. But during the course of that year, you will pick up a certificate for. In the second year, again, an integrated curriculum, uh, lots of micro-credential offerings, again, very well integrated and with strong industry content. 
and you might pick up an associate degree. And then if you carry on to the end of third year, you know, a degree in advanced technology. In other words, not making that clear demarcation. Um, it, you know, it's often not until later life that one realises, do you really want to be an electrician or an electrical engineer? We have good pathways now after school to allow you to move between sectors. What I'd really like, I think, is to convince students, first of all, any student, that they have the capacity to go to university, if that's what they want. And there are also these other options, you know, options at the margin where we can actually integrate Mm. higher and vocational education. I think more and more universities, incidentally, uh, are moving down that track. Well, is this the sort of thing that you think should be included in the Accord? Um, the, it's interesting, the, the members of the Accord too, I think there's really only one person, who's, I think your deputy, Barney Glover, or the Vice-Chancellor, pardon me, I yeah, think yeah, is the yeah, only... Yeah. The, I don't think I'll call him my deputy. No, 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 <laughs> I'll redo that. <laughs> um, that it's, it's, so it's an, it's an interesting range of uh, people, people like the head of Macquarie, for instance, uh, Shamara Widramanaika. I, I think that's really important, yeah. But you like, you like that lineup, do you? Not, not being a bunch of educationalists. Well, I think there's a lot of people there with educational perspective. And, of course, there's going to be another uh, group, I think, established by the minister which will, who have, will have more of that perspective. But, yes, I think so. One of the things that the minister has asked for is for the accord to examine the connection between higher education and vocational education, just the things I've been talking about now. I think that's important. And and. Another part, I think, of the ref- terms of reference is how you bring together knowledge and skills. So I think the minister is on to it. But in order to achieve that, of course, I want people with, you know, deep university experience. But we need also people with industry experience, which isn't to say that you know, everybody who goes to university should study something vocational and orientation. Um, I'm actually, in some ways, much more keen that they pick up the the underlying skills, you know, the ability to solve complex problems or to communicate effectively or to collaborate in the workplace. And it seems to me you can pick that if you do political studies just as much as if you do teaching. I should point out the process will be led by the former University of Adelaide Vice-Chancellor, Professor Mary O'Kane, who was the first woman to lead an engineering f- uh, faculty in um, uh, Australia. That's right. So I, I'd better really <laughs> correct myself there. Um, what about this issue of fees? Because one of their terms of reference, key as areas of review, uh, a student fees and government contributions, including a review of the Job Ready Graduates Program, now, I think the Albanese government is scrapping the last government's increase to costs for an arts degree, for instance. Now, do you, do you think these are good moves? Well, I think we certainly need to re-examine what is the contribution that government makes to a university education and what is the contribution that students make. Remembering that if you're domestic students, you do it through, you know, an income contingent loan feed called Hex Help. So, but I think it is very roughly now, it's about 50-50. I think on average, and it is on average, students contribute about 48% of the cost of their um, higher education and the government, I think, uh, 52%. One of the things why, frankly, the Job Ready Graduates Program has been, uh, frankly, a bit of a dud is it didn't even achieve what the government wanted because it thought that if you change fee levels around, you know, made arts and uh, uh, humanities more expensive and other subjects like uh, teaching and agriculture less expensive, that would persuade people to come into universities and choose their university options. What we have discovered, in fact, what we probably knew before the Jobs Ready program, was that, you know, fees are very weak price signals for students when you don't have to pay upfront, when you can get a loan. So probably just, you know, doing it on the basis where you charge more fees for this or less fees for that in order to direct people in the directions you want is not very successful. The other problem is, is it really? Yes, people are increasingly going to university with vocational intent. That's the the truth, Geraldine, you know. Uh, it's not to say university... just acquisition of lovely deep knowledge. Yes. Look, I'm all in favour of people who 
like me, in my degree, went to study politics and American studies. I actually think that's useful. You've got plenty of time in your life to become, if you like, more technical. But the fact is that increasingly students are going into university, wanting university education, but with a vocational orientation. You know, they, they want to think this is leading to a career. One of the challenges, I think, in universities is saying to these people, that's great, and we do want to prepare you for a very uncertain future labour market. But equally important, from our point of view, we want to educate you to be active citizens. You know, we're living in a world in which democratic governance is, you know, is under severe challenge right now. So we need to educate people that they can be full and active participants in civil society, as well as preparing themselves for uh, their careers for the next 50 years. Dare I say, how are you going to do that, though, for, 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 for um, situations that need very uh, uh, very detailed levels of technical knowledge? I mean, I'm, again, I'm going to medicine, yeah. but not just medicine, engineering. How are you going to build that in? Well, I think we, I, I think universities are already starting to do this, to be honest. Uh, you know, if you go and do medicine now, uh, even the way, in fact, students for medicine are selected is to do a lot with what we would call soft skills. Now, I hate that term. But what you obviously want is people who are not going to only just be acquire those medical and surgical skills, but be able to explain themselves, to be able to be communicate, to be able to be empathic. So we need those skills as well. The fact is, if you look to the future, um, you know, uh, professional skills we're teaching are going to come under increasing what likely to be undermined by robotic process automation and artificial intelligence. A lot of the skills we're teaching, even in medicine, about analysis and diagnosis. In 10 years' time, that will be quite, quite differently um, using effectively robots. So we need to give people those wider skills, not just the technical skills, so that they can be agile and adaptable. Oh dear, that does seem like a very big brief. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> you'll watch from the sidelines, I think. I will, I will. Peter Shergold, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thanks so much for the opportunity. Professor Peter Shergold, stepping down this week, uh, this month, as uh, Chancellor of the University of Western Sydney. Well, with all that in mind about uh, change, we're going to look at um, the sorts of clever digital offerings and uh, changing faces of libraries. That's up next here on Saturday Extra. Yes, last this, lastly this week, when was the last time you visited the library? Was it your most recent visit, a trip to a physical place? Was it maybe a, a digital visit? The pandemic really changed the way many of us interact with cultural institutions, libraries, museums, galleries, and that change has continued in this post-pandemic era. Today, libraries are no longer just dusty repositories of books and documents the way they're serving communities is really changing. And it was to that end that the State Library of Victoria's President of the Board, Christine Christian, and uh, CEO Paul Doldig went on a research trip to North America to investigate how their leading institutions are finding new and exciting ways to serve their communities. Christine and Paul, welcome to Saturday Extra. Good morning, Good morning Jodie. Thank you. Paul, tell us about the institutions you visited, why they were in the US, why that matters, and they were really the top-level museums and galleries and libraries there, weren't they? Yes, they were, Jodie. We were looking for institutions that were uh, similar to State Library in terms of size and impact for their communities, but also those that were leaders in uh, digital experiences, leaders in digital collections. So, from the State Library's point of view, we have just completed a, an amazing redevelopment of our physical space. We've grown by about 40% and we are busy. We're full. We've, we've had about a million people through since lockdown. We're now looking at our digital experience and, and making sure that we can actually offer that to everybody. And what exactly were you looking to learn from the people you spoke to at these, un, at these institutions? 
Well, digital can mean so many things. So we looked at uh, LA, for example, LA Public Library. They they have uh, a really uh, impressive um, range of technology. Uh, they offer their uh, their their patrons, um, you know, makerspace. Uh, 3D printing and so on. We looked at New York Public Library. They've been uh, very uh, advanced in dealing with uh, Google Books and making sure all their books are available online. Uh, Boston Public Library is uh, a leader in digital history and, and really knitting together the uh, the history of uh, Massachusetts. Um, Harvard, the future of the library and, and, and so on. So we've, we've been looking at a very wide range and, and the US is uh, really in the lead in terms of uh, digital and, and how it relates to also the technology companies that support digital in the in the America. Oh, interesting. So they, they've just poured money into it, have they? And for how long have they been doing that? Uh, so Google Books, of course, has been around for quite a while, digitising uh, books uh, across the world. Uh, the Internet Archive, also a, a not-for-profit foundation, has been uh, very big in this for, for many, many years. Uh, so there's a really in, in the US there's a really interesting uh, public private partnership uh, for digitization. Fascinating. Why don't we, yeah. Christine? Why don't we do things like that? Uh, is this just a, a representation of the giant amounts of capital that are poured into public uh, enterprises in the US? Well, partly, Geraldine. Um, and good morning. Uh, yes, I mean that was was very apparent um, uh, during our trip. Just the. The, uh, the you know the, um, the, the the significant foundations uh, that support libraries and recognise uh, the importance of libraries, um, but you know libraries and and I suppose it's a reflection of where libraries are at at the moment. Um, libraries around the world um, are undergoing um, a renaissance, uh, and certainly the State Library of Victoria is no no exception. Paul mentioned we've just. Um, completed a major redevelopment um, of the spaces. Um, we've got new galleries. We've got 40% more spaces for um, physical visitation. Um, and um, it's interesting because you know, many predicted uh, wrongly um, that the rise of the internet and digitisation um, would mean that public libraries were on, you know, borrowed time. But um, the opposite is true, um, certainly for the State Library of Victoria. Um, you know, we're thriving. Um, the libraries are thriving in, um, in North America. Um, and certainly this sort of 21st century um, resurgence um, is really thanks in large part to millennials. Um, uh, you know, Tell us more. What I, do you mean? Yeah, well, well, before I sort of, you know, get on to um, just why invest in digital and, and you know, what's driving this. Um, if just from a physical standpoint, if attendance figures are any indication, um, the State Library um, is in Victoria is, is you know, we'd say um, based on visitation, the most valued, um, you know, cultural institution, um, more Australians visited libraries um, in the last decade than any other of the institutions, which is interesting. But um, when it comes to um, the importance of digitisation, um, at least in the state library's strategic aims, um, what is clear, uh, and this was certainly reflected in our North America visit, is that People's information habits have undergone uh, a sea change. You know, there has been a major shift toward, you know, the digital, and libraries are, you know, trying to serve um, and need to serve a wide range of patrons. Um, you know, at many different points along, you know, the well, curve. Well, yeah. I do have to interrupt because I do wonder whether it means they are showing up to the space or whether they are doing it. See, I can see a tension here between uh, what you need to provide as a community hub, which I know they work as quite remarkably, actually, and people do accessing it in their own time. So, uh, yes, are they still a community hub where people physically show up? Is that what the Americans have found or not? More than ever, more than ever. The, the, the interesting thing is that this is happening in parallel. We've had the rise of digital rising at the same rate as um, as visitation of the physical space. And so it's this sort of interdisciplinary use of libraries that um, that we're seeing like we've never seen um, 
before. And and we're having, you know, the, the experiences that um, people are using the library for, you know, all print or, you know, all physical access of the collection um, at one end and all digital at the other end. And so it means that um, you don't have to physically go into the library during the opening hours to access the collection. Digital now allows sort of that democratisation. So I wonder why you turn up at the library then, Paul? <laughs> well, I think, it's a, I think it's a virtuous circle. If, if you think about, um, for example, music, you listen to music, but there's nothing like going to a live concert. You read a book, there's nothing like going to a library and being amongst other people doing similar activities, engaging with the programs, engaging with the exhibitions, engaging with the collections. So we see, uh, yeah, that, that, that both go hand in hand. It's not either, it's definitely and, it's definitely both. And that's that's true for libraries, that's true also for, for galleries and museums. Yes. See, we have been talking about digitisation, but, you know, your library has this fabulous physical footprint in the heart Absolutely. of Melbourne, with gorgeous sandstone columns and, you know, marvellous glass ceilings and lawns. And there, the architecture emphasis in a range of public libraries is really quite startling. And people will talk to you about that. They will say that uh, yep. in, in different states and they'll cite it. <laughs> They'll say the public. So it's just it's intriguing what it taps in people's uh, desires. Well, there's nothing like uh, going to the uh, the dome, the Latrobe reading room dome and, and seeing people just, their jaws dropping as they see the, the, the absolute beautiful um, dome uh, reading room we have there. And I think that, that you know, that awe, that wonder is, is part of um, part of the experience. It's part of um, engaging with, uh, with civic life. And, you know, whether you're um, wanting to, you know, research something, read something, engage with a with a program, just doing it with other people in a glorious space is is what we're about. Um, I wonder, uh, Christine, whether you need to have, as a lot of galleries do, they need to have an ability to earn a separate line of money. So they need to become an entertainment hub as well. They need to, that they sort of there for weddings and and uh, for big conferences and so on. Do you think that is going to become an ever present need? Um, it will be an it will be an ever present need, but I also um, believe that, notwithstanding the commercial benefits from having a beautiful um, building that can be uh, used by um, you know the community sort of more generally, um, the 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 physical libraries I think um, have never been you know more vital and interesting and and useful um, places. I mean the people who um, you know, people who work in the libraries um, are helping other people make sense of, you know, um, lots of information. But I think that physical spaces and digital platforms will both play um, an essential role in providing access to to knowledge. Um, and if we don't, and if we don't maintain our physical libraries, we will we will lose essential public intellectual spaces in our communities where people can, you know, meet face to face. And if we don't build digital libraries connected to them, then um, those physical spaces may become obsolete. So do you find governments, uh, uh, governments, and I wonder what they told you in the US, are governments receptive to this? Because I hear money when you're speaking. Obviously, this needs money to do all this. Um, Is this something you have to persuade politicians of? Yeah, well, Geraldine, look, you know, have there been questions raised, you know, by government about why the urgency of digitisation? You know, sure. Um, Have we encountered some pushback or resistance around, you know, making this shift? Um, Sure. But I think think what we are presenting is um, the kind of change that is in sync with our culture right now. Mm -hmm. Um, We've had extremely positive responses from people who understand that, you know, the state library has to be a library of, of the moment. Okay. Uh, Look, I'm just watching my clock tick away. Thank you both very much indeed. Um, what a marvellous trip to have. Uh, uh, Christine Christian and um, Paul Daldig, thank you. Thank, thank you, you so much. Um, yes, we do go to libraries, Geraldine. Very... <laughs> text to coming in. Fair enough. And look, that discussion brings to mind another interview from earlier this year, uh, we, a book called The Library, A Fragile History. And that looks at the history of libraries. We're going to repeat that in the best, our summer season, best of. So I do hope you can join us. And that's it for Extra with me, Geraldine Dude. Thank you for your company today. And I do hope you can join us again next week. 
Bye-bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.